Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. Not only that, but we also enjoy a nice pint or two during these chats. So pour yourself a beverage, if you're of age, of course, and let's get into it. In last week's episode, I shared my media experience being in Charlotte for the matchup against Trinidad and Tobago, previewed our quarterfinal Gold Cup matchup against Canada, and answered a few questions that were sent over and wrapped up with my final thoughts as always. This week, we get to talk about that quarterfinal matchup against Canada, as well as our semifinal matchup against Panama on Wednesday night of this week, which ultimately saw the end of the U.S.'s run at the Gold Cup. We will spend the majority of the time looking at each player's stock in the overall setup of the U.S. men's national team player pool. Who earned another look? Who played themselves out of the pool? And we'll just give a current state of the U.S. men's national team program moving forward since they will be back with their clubs until our next friendlies in September. We will then take a very quick look at the U.S. women's national team as they prepare for their opening women's World Cup match next Thursday evening and wrap things up with some final thoughts of the week. I'm excited for this week's beer feature. With the U.S. being eliminated from the Gold Cup earlier this week, I'd planned on featuring a brewery from Los Angeles, but since we won't be playing there anymore, I decided to switch it up. It seemed more appropriate to pick one for the month of July that was inspired by our military, given the July 4th holiday and celebration of Independence Day recently. So, this week, out of Norfolk, Virginia, I'm happy to feature Armed Forces Brewing Company, and specifically, their Special Hops IPA. Now, usually I am featuring local craft beer with locations to visit, but this one is different. Armed Forces Brewing started their operations back in 2019, has expanded ever since, and is a military tribute craft brewing company that pays homage to our great military, both active duty and veterans. They've got an incredible team that includes an award-winning brewmaster, one of the most famous U.S. Navy SEALs in the world, and several other great stories and individuals as well. Again, they aren't a typical brewery with tap rooms to visit, at least not yet from my understanding. They are focused more on mass production and gaining distribution share on a nationwide and eventually global level, which I'm usually against for craft brewers because I tend to find it dilutes the product a bit. But Given this is about our military, I can support the cause based on the freedoms that they have afforded to us. Now, this special hops IPA is 6.7% in alcohol and is more of an American-style IPA, but it's all about the hop flavor, aroma, and bitterness. It's got a little floral, fruity, piney, and resin hop character to it. It's definitely a little citrusy, peachy. It's got a little bit of a mango profile with a blend of Azaka, Centennial, and Simcoe hops. I should also note, it's a 12-ounce can. It's not officially a full pint, but that just means I can have a couple extra cans today. Currently, you can only find this in Maryland, Virginia, Texas, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Tennessee, but they do ship to 36 states, and they hope to expand that distribution nationwide soon. That's their goal. And their plan as they expand is to employ at least 70% of their workforce company-wide by hiring military veterans. So, Thank you to Armed Forces Brewing for being this week's beer feature. I wish you luck in your future business. Cheers. <sighs> Have you ever told yourself that something was meaningless, truly meaningless, that you shouldn't care about it because it doesn't really matter? 
And then you find yourself disappointed, defeated, unhappy when it's all over. That's exactly how I felt late Wednesday night when the U.S. lost to Panama in penalty kicks to end their Gold Cup run. A Gold Cup tournament that I mentioned multiple times is truly meaningless because it's just our C-Squad playing and none of our true regulars outside of Matt Turner. Why was I so disappointed when Panama's final kick went past Turner and they were celebrating? Because we were outdone. I mean, look at today's beer sponsor. It's about American pride. It's about winning no matter what. It's about the passion for the game, for anyone who puts on that U.S. kit. I hate losing no matter the circumstances. And even though I tried to tell myself over and over and speak the meaningless tournament into existence, when I finally went to bed after the loss, I was upset at how things played out. So let's rewind back to the quarterfinal match against Canada. And no, I'm not going to break down these matches. I'd rather spend the bulk of today evaluating and updating this player pool. But the match against Canada was one of the least entertaining matches for the first 80 minutes. It kind of reminded me of the World Cup final between Argentina and France, where it just seemed the result was inevitable until France all of a sudden knocked in some ridiculous goals at the end of the match, and then back and forth and extra time, and then penalty kicks for Messi to end up a champion of the world. It definitely wasn't exactly like that. But for long stretches of the match, it was just dull and uneventful in play. Finally, in the 88th minute, Brandon Vasquez put the U.S. ahead in what seemingly was the match-winning goal off a beautiful cross from Dewan Jones. We weren't even finished celebrating before Canada came down, and somehow an extended arm from Miles Robinson gave Canada a penalty kick to level things up right at the end of regulation. So, after 90 minutes, the two teams had to play two 15-minute extra time periods to see who the winner would be. If things would still be tied up, then they'd go to penalty kicks. I should say this too. It wasn't for a lack of atmosphere in Cincinnati. Just like in Charlotte, the support from the crowd was exceptional. Hopefully, the supporters were able to check out Mad Tree Brewing beforehand, but I continue to be impressed every time the national team plays at TQL Stadium. So, in extra time, we went and the first 15 minutes went by uh, without anyone being able to break things open. But in the 109th minute, Canada did, after an incredible individual run down the left flank, they ripped a shot that took a wicked little deflection off Matt Miazga and blazed past an outstretched Turner to give Canada a 2-1 lead. Things felt pretty much over at that point. It just seemed the wind was out of our sails, but then seemingly out of nowhere in the 114th minute, the ball found Gianluca Buggio, whose shot went towards goal, bounced off of a defender, and into the net for an own goal to tie things up at two and forced penalty kicks. The hero of the night was Matt Turner. He made two fantastic saves to start off the shootout, and when Canada's final attempt hit the crossbar, the U.S. were victorious and moved on to the semifinal to face off against Panama, who had defeated Qatar 4-0 the night before. Disclaimer here, in last week's episode, I mistakenly said we would face the winner of Jamaica and Qatar in Las Vegas, and clearly, had too many thoughts running through my mind together. So that's my fault if you had any confusion. It was, in fact, the winner of Panama and Qatar and would take place in San Diego, not Vegas, as the other semifinal between Jamaica and uh, Mexico did. Come Wednesday night, we knew the squad would be tired after such a short turnaround from Sunday, traveling across the country to California for the match and struggling with a couple of injuries that ultimately kept out Alex Zendejas and Jalen Neal from being able to compete in the semifinal. 
I will say, if there is one major positive to take away from this team, it's their resiliency. They have kept fighting no matter what. They have just fought for one another. Even when things uh, look bleak, they found a way to win against uh, Canada. And now against Panama, Callahan was forced to make several tactical changes. And in the first 20 minutes or so, they looked a much better side, attacking freely and aggressively. But then the legs seemed to get worn down and Panama really dominated the remainder of the first half. However, it was still even at nil-nil at the break. Coming out in the second half after some adjustments and shape, the U.S. looked a better side and it felt like we were going to break through and find a winner. Brandon Vasquez missed a difficult tap-in. Jesus Ferreira had a shot go centimeters wide of the post that really should have been buried into the corner of the net. But the goal never came and regulation ended without any goals being scored. It was a hot early kickoff in San Diego. I will also say this, for as great as the atmosphere was in Charlotte and Cincinnati, San Diego was a major letdown. Why schedule a 4.30 p.m. local kickoff in the middle of a work week for a semifinal match? The stadium was empty. The atmosphere wasn't great. But with that being said, players were worn down, cramping, struggling to fight through the pain, and it opened up our squad. In the 99th minute, Panama played a through ball that an on-rushing Turner couldn't beat the attacker to, who poked it around Turner and into the net to take a 1-0 lead. The body language of the U.S. squad looked like they felt it was over, like they knew the loss was coming. But lo and behold, out of nowhere again, a long ball played into the box in the 105th minute found Jordan Morris's head, who played a superb pass to Ferreira who volleyed into the upper corner to tie things up at one apiece. A great goal, great finish, incredible resiliency. But that was it. A 1-1 final, another PK shootout. And let's fast forward to the sixth round when Christian Roldan had his shot saved and Panama came up and scored theirs. The tournament ended for the U.S. The Gold Cup officially over for the U.S. Panama onto the final where they will face Mexico for the title. And I think we can all agree on who we want to win that. So, as I mentioned, I want to spend the majority of the time looking at each player's stock in the overall setup of the U.S. men's national team player pool. Who earned another look, who played themselves out of the pool, and just give a current state of the program moving forward. So let's go there now, starting with this current group that just participated in the Gold Cup. Looking at our goalkeepers. Matt Turner is still the clear number one within this program. That's not changing anytime soon. He continues to prove his worth. Sean Johnson got one start during the tournament, and Gaga Slonina was there for the overall experience. Slonina will be a part of the group moving forward. I'm not ready to just hand him the number three spot, but it's clear his potential is there to be a number one in the future. As for Johnson, it's probably time to phase him out of this next cycle. In defense, Jalen Neal was the standout for me during the tournament. Only 19 years old, he played like a veteran out there and will absolutely earn time in the future. Miles Robinson did enough to show he can be trusted on in the future too. Matt Miazga had some moments as well, but not enough for me to get future call-ups and matches that truly matter. Aaron Long, he got the start against Panama, but he can't be in the squad moving forward. It's time to move on. He's been around this group too long, no pun intended. Same with DeAndre Yedlin. He's been serviceable, but he looks a step too slow at this level now. Brian Reynolds, however, displayed a lot of potential for this fu- for his future. I can see him earning more call-ups. John Tolkien, I expected more out of him. 
I thought he would be a standout performer, but he struggled against Jamaica and only saw the pitch laid on against Panama. He is going to be on the outside looking in for a little while. And Dewan Jones, he stepped up. He played very well. Was it enough though? Not quite for me yet. I think he is the kind of, or he's that kind of MLS guy who can be serviceable in a bind, but he's not at a true international caliber uh, level for me yet. Into the midfield, James Sands had a heck of a tournament. He was a big factor in this team. He showed that he has the versatility to play as a central defensive midfielder, and he could add depth for our A squad. Gianluca Buggio and Jordi Mahalovic did some nice things at times, but not consistently enough or at a dominant enough level to earn immediate time with the top squad. They will be around and should continue to develop over the next couple of years in Europe. Alan Sonora was injured and forced to withdraw from camp. He didn't do enough for me to truly evaluate him. I feel like he missed a big opportunity to shine here. Jackson Yule was called in as his replacement, and he never saw the field, and is another guy that should be phased out of this cycle. Aiden Morris is the final member of this midfield group, and I have to say, his decision to leave the team mid-tournament due to personal reasons unknown is a bit of a head-scratcher for someone who is looking to make a name for himself. I have to give him an incomplete for the time being. And finally, into the attack, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan, Julian Gressel. Thanks for your time. All good to great MLS players all need to be phased out of the program. They have had their time. They have minimal impacts now and just aren't at a high enough level to compete internationally. Cade Cowell showed that he has some promise for the future, but he is still very raw in terms of experience. He might be someone to look at for the 2030 cycle. Alex Zendejas struggled this tournament. He really tried too hard to score goals, and maybe it was a lack of true talent around him, but he didn't deliver this tournament. I feel the program values him, though, but he is down on the depth chart for me right now. That brings me to the final two players in the squad, Jesus Ferreira and Brandon Vasquez, both quality MLS strikers. Both had some good moments in this tournament. Ferreira should walk away with the golden boot for highest goal scorer of the Gold Cup with seven right now. Did either truly do enough to make them the third or fourth option on our A squad? I don't think Vasquez did. And I think Ferreira showed he is our current Jossie Zardes, who sticks around the main team and in these meaningless games is able to pad his stats. But when push comes to shove against higher quality opponents, I don't think he's there yet. I said this last week, he's only 22 years old. He has talent. He needs to challenge himself in Europe to get to that next level, though. I'm not saying that no player from MLS should be on our top national team, but I am saying that if you are young and talented enough, you need to push yourself and make a move overseas to compete against higher level. I was asked after the match to give somewhat of a current state of the national team, essentially a current depth chart moving forward. How many of these Gold Cup guys do you think deserve to be in our top 23 to 26 players at the moment? I only have a few here, maybe. Top three goalkeepers right now for me are Turner, Ethan Horvath, and Zach Steffen. Slonina is close, but those three are leading the way for me right now. In defense, at right back, you've got Serginho Dess and Joe Scally. At left back, you've got Jedi Robinson firmly in that spot. Dest and Scally can both play left back in a bind, which I think gives Brian Reynolds a spot on this depth chart for the time being. In central defense, it's a crowded group. You've got Tim Ream, Chris Richards, Cameron Carter-Vickers, Miles Robinson, Austin Trusty, Walker Zimmerman still there, Mark McKenzie, Jalen Neal, etc. In the midfield, you've got Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, 
Tyler Adams, Gio Reyna, Luca De La Torre, Brennan Aronson. Throw in James Sands now. We've talked about this before, but there's some serious competition in there to figure out who the top three are going to be in this group to start in the future. And then in the attack, you've got Christian Pulisic, Tim Weah, Fuller and Balligan, Pepe, Taylor Booth, Josh Sargent, Jordan Pifak, Haji Wright, Ferreira, and probably a couple of other guys on the fringe too. That's probably closer to 30 names, but the point of this exercise was to show you how stacked up the player pool is at the moment, but also the drop-off from these 30-ish players compared to the next 20 to 30 players in the pool, it's substantial. Maybe not for our region or confederation like we just saw with this C-Squad in the Gold Cup, but overall, we need to keep developing our player pool, keep grooming some of the younger Olympic age-eligible players, and truly focus on this 2026 cycle, each step of the way moving forward. Interim coach BJ Callahan's time in charge officially ended Wednesday night. Our old friend, Greg Burhalter, he's back in charge. We will see how those first two friendlies go in September. Will he change his system and style or preference for certain players over others? That's to be seen. Last thing I will say about this summer is that I really enjoyed what I saw out of BJ Callahan. Sure, he was playing with house money, but I saw something from the squad that was severely lacking over the past year, maybe couple of years. They looked free. They looked like they were having fun. They were allowed to be more creative. I credit all of that to BJ. And while in the post-match press conference, he didn't give any clarity into the next steps for him. I hope Greg rehires him as a top assistant. He has more than earned it. Again, next time we will see the U.S. men's national team play will be in September in their friendlies against Uzbekistan and Oman. However, there will be plenty to chat about over the next two months with European preseason just kicking off this week. Transfers still in the works and much, much more. All right. Well, switching gears completely here and moving into the women's national team and a quick preview into the Women's World Cup. Again, I had really hoped to have had somebody with a bit more knowledge around women's soccer to join me for this. But again, schedules conflicted too much, and we weren't able to make an episode happen in time. So unfortunately, you'll have to do with just getting my quick overview. I'm not going to run through the roster or anything like that, but I will highlight a few individuals. There are familiar names like Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Julie Ertz, Lindsay Horan, Rose Lavelle. But there are also some really exciting newcomers to watch out for. Trinity Rodman. For those of you who don't know, she's the daughter of NBA legend Dennis Rodman. There's Sophia Smith, a 22-year-old forward playing for the Portland Thorns who could be the top goal scorer in the tournament. There's also the breakout star in Alyssa Thompson, the 18-year-old who plays for Angel City FC. She's also one to watch along with Smith, Rodman, and Morgan. They should lead the scoring efforts at the World Cup. Now, Morgan and Horan will be co-captains of the squad. Rapino recently announced she's going to be retiring from soccer at the end of the NWSL season, and this would be her final World Cup. We also have a few injuries keeping some starters out of the World Cup too. But overall, the U.S. women are favorites to three-peat as champions. Anything can happen, but they will be heavily favored in their group, especially in their first match against Vietnam. The Netherlands and Portugal will present tougher tests, but the U.S. should be able to come out on top. And if they do, they'll face the runners-up from Group G, which will be Argentina, Italy, Sweden, or South Africa. 
I was watching their send-off match against Wales this past Sunday with my oldest daughter where Rodman scored both goals for a 2-0 victory. And what I took away from it was that the competition in women's soccer has increased incredibly well over the past four years. The gap between the top teams is no longer there. For example, second-rate Germany just lost 3-2 in their final warm-up to the 119th-ranked team in Zambia. Just for clarity here, there's only 126 ranked nations in women's soccer. So on paper, that is a huge upset. But it's great for women's soccer. And again, I am no international women's soccer expert, at least not enough to give you breakdowns and insights the same way I do for our men's national team. It's not for lack of care or interest. It's solely due to lack of knowledge. For this Women's World Cup, I will do my best to provide updates and coverage, but it won't be as in-depth as my other content. Either way, next Thursday night, July 20th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, tune into Fox for our U.S. Women's National Team's first match against Vietnam. Good luck, ladies. All right, on to our final thoughts of the week. In the U.S. soccer world, a couple of transfer updates for you. Christian Pulisic has officially completed his transfer to AC Milan. Milan has now set their sights on their next target. U.S. striker Fuller and Balogun to join up with Pulisic. Sounds like the price tag that Arsenal currently has on Ballo will be too steep, so I'm doubtful of this one. AC Milan had also made an initial bid for Yunus Musa, but it was too low for Valencia, so they're not increasing their bid. That doesn't look like it's going to work out. Musa still has interest from Fulham and had agreed personal terms with both AC Milan and Fulham, so he is clearly motivated to make a move, and he should. Austin Trusty, also an Arsenal player at the moment, looks set to be loaned back out to the English Championship to continue his development and playing time. Trusty was the player of the season for Birmingham City last year, and now it sounds like recently promoted Ipswich Town are targeting Trusty for a major role in their defense. European clubs just kicked off their initial preseason training camps this week, including some initial friendlies. Josh Sargent scored for Norwich City in their first friendly. That's the only real highlight thus far. But my point is this. Our players need to make their transfers happen sooner rather than later in order to get acclimated to their new teams and to position themselves for the best possible chance at earning playing time. If they wait until it's too late, they'll most likely have trouble breaking into their new squads early on. And if they don't make a move at all, it could spell trouble for them with their current clubs too. And finally, I have talked about this before with players and being careful not to jump on them personally or attacking them on social media for poor performances. I spoke about Pulisic last year when he was in a bit of a slump with Chelsea, but this week, an interview with English player Delhi Ali, once one of the most promising prospects in England, who played in the 2018 World Cup, is currently playing for Everton. He came out around his mental health struggles, really opening up about his childhood trauma, sexual abuse, addiction, drug dealing as a seven or eight-year-old, being adopted at the age of 12, and so much more. It was very candid in a vulnerable interview, and I highly recommend you finding it and watching it. Many of us had assumed that Ali had just become rich and famous as a youngster, and he got lazy with his performances and just fell off. We've seen that happen too many times with promising young players. But it sounds like he 
finally got the therapy and the help he needed in order to get his life back on track. He's a likable guy and one who you hope pull things back around and has a great year with Everton. But I bring this up once again because after the U.S. lost to Panama, there was so much noise on social media around Jesus Ferreira and Christian Roldan missing their penalties in the shootout loss about how they just aren't good enough and should never be with the national team. Just really negative, more personal attacks against them. Now, I've been very outspoken about my thoughts on Roldan, even Ferreira to an extent, but only regarding their level of play in comparison to others in our player pool who might be a bit more deserving for call-ups than they've been. It's never been an attack on their personal characters or trying to tear them down over a game of soccer. This social media world we live in is a very strange and abusive place. It's just dumb to attack players for something that didn't go their way. Now, I'm going to go off script here. So hopefully this comes off okay. Let's just stop with this nonsense and just be better than that. Like Deli Alley, you, you never know what is going on behind the scenes. Same with Aiden Morris leaving camp. He didn't bail out on his teammates. There's clearly something wrong personally there. Hopefully he gets the help he needs. But don't contribute to this social media madness. Do something more constructive with your time than attack these players. You've never been in their position. You've never made it as far as them. I know you must feel pretty powerful behind a little keyboard, but in reality, you are the problem, not a missed penalty. All right, well, that's how we're going to leave it for this week. Again, appreciate you all for listening. An unfortunate end to the men's summer together, but the good news is we get a chance to see the two-time defending Women's World Cup champions kick off next week. Again, if you have a question for the show or would like something specific to be discussed on the show, please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or email me directly at will.clark at thesoccerpines.com. Big thanks again to Armed Forces Brewing Company for letting me feature you today. Until next time, cheers, my friends.